Amen. All right, let me get situated for a second up here. I got to give myself a time limit because I tend to talk a lot. Let me see. My mom and my dad are here today. That's my dad. You can say hi to him after service. His name's Chuck. My mom's Anna. She's helping my nephew. She watches my nephew on Sundays. Um, but they're awesome. They actually kind of, it's hard to get them to come down because they're about an hour away. So they come in the, to come in the morning. Then they also have their own church. But I used me speaking as kind of a little pull of like, come on, mom, dad, don't you want to see me speak? So I got them to come and they're here. We're going to hang out. So make sure you say hi to them. Um, so first off, I'm going to start, what I'm going to speak, so we've been doing the cost of discipleship. We've been kind of going through a series of what it means ultimately to follow Christ, what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And what I'm going to talk about today is hearing the call of Jesus, is the call to follow me. And um, if you guys don't mind, I'm going to have you turn to Luke 5. Luke 5, starting in verse 27. Actually, Dee, can you keep track of time for me? Because this isn't going to work for me. That's all I have, but I guess just tell me when I need to start wrapping it up. <laughs> all right, so Luke. Let me find Luke here. So Luke 5, starting in verse 27. This is, if you read the beginning of this chapter, it's really talking about how when Jesus called his first disciples. So verse 27, it says, After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus came in, in bodily form with his word and called his disciples. And he really called them the, the sinners. It was the sick ones. It was the tax collectors, which did not have a good reputation. You know, the fishermen, they were of the working class. They weren't of the, um, what, what is it called? Like the temple. Like it's all, I, I'll explain it this way. So in it, from what I understand, in Israel, Jewish early history, there was, you went to school to learn the ministry, if you will, to read the Torah, to gain understanding. And there was a place where it came where you would either go on to be a priest, to minister in the temple. And of course, this was divided by tribes as well. But then there was also those who wouldn't move on. They would kind of learn a little bit of the Torah, and then they would go and do their father's work and they would do work in a vocation style. So he actually, and you can see where Jesus kind of called the normal, you know, he called those who were normal, who were ordinary people and they were broken and they were weak. Um, they weren't what we would consider the elite or the knowledgeable or the respected. And so that's when the Pharisees and Sadducees who Jesus had a reputation at this point, I mean, at 12 years old, he ministered in the temple and confounded um, the scribes. 
And so he had this reputation. Like, why are you sitting with these people? Like, why are you sitting with these sinners? And Jesus responded and said, well, the well, if you feel like you're okay, you have no need of a physician. But those who are sick actually recognize their need, and that's where I'm going to be found. And so I want to kind of ask a question is, how is this call handed to us today? And how do we apply the call to follow Jesus to our lives? You know, he called the disciples, but the thing is, is the call that he gave to the disciples, he's also giving to us. And first off, we need to recognize, because even I was kind of realizing as I was reading through chapter 5 of Luke earlier, all Jesus, Jesus was actually calling Peter, and it was when he threw the net over the boat, and he was like, don't worry, there will be fish, just throw the net on the other side, and all the fish came. And, and Peter wasn't like, oh my gosh, that's an amazing miracle. He just went, woe is me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, follow me. And so it's almost this place that we have to come to is we need to recognize that we are sinners to hear the call of Jesus. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of go through. It's going to be a little bit serious. And like I said, I'm not going to do it any justice because you could talk about this for a lot, very, very long time, for eternity. Um, but in Romans 3.10, it says, no one is righteous, not one. And I want to say this to you, you know, raising a child, you don't have to teach a child how to be selfish, you don't have to teach them to be mean to other children. You don't have to teach them to say bad words, if you will. Some you do. <laughs> I hope you don't. But all that to say is what it is, is we have to actually teach children to be selfless, to give, to share, to say kind things, to be nice to love others. We have to actually teach that, but we don't have to teach them to be selfish. And what that shows is that we are born sinners. In Genesis 8:21, just to back up this, it says man is evil from his youth. In Psalms 51:5 it says for I was sinful from my mother's womb. And in Psalms 58, 3, it says, the wicked people are born sinners. Even from birth, they have lied and gone their own way. We are born into sin the way fish is born into water. Paul Washer says it like this, and I love Paul Washer. Some of you I know may not like Paul Washer. I love him. He preaches the gospel. He says this, he goes, we don't know how much we have sinned in the same way a fish doesn't know how wet he is. We are so familiar with sin because it's all we've ever known. We have been born into it. We drink it, we consume it, we live in it. It's inside of us and it's outside of us. It is all around us. And I want to say this, that I don't care how good of a person or a citizen you are. I don't care how well you've obeyed your parents throughout your childhood. I don't care how well you follow the rules. 
We are all sinful, fallen creatures. And we have to have a revelation of our wickedness. Isaiah says, when Isaiah, if you look at it, I think it's Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. It's in Isaiah 6. And Isaiah gets a picture of the throne room of heaven. Guess what his first revelation was when he saw Jesus? Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I sit amongst a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. Who am I? And it's that place of as we gain a revelation of Jesus that we recognize how fallen we are, that in response we worship him, and we're going to go through that because he's delivered us. So before I jump into that, that was kind of a foreshadow of what we're, where we're going, is I want to kind of give a little bit of understanding of the tragedy of sin. I feel like we don't, um, focus isn't the right word. We don't address it enough in our culture. Nobody wants to address anything. Everyone wants to be politically correct. You know, well, oh, it's about your heart. You know, as long as your heart is good, then everything's okay. No, no. Yes, it is about your heart, but there is absolutely, if your heart is in the right place, there's going to be an overflow that manifests itself. So the tragedy of sin, it is all pervasive. I'm going to kind of run through this list pretty quickly. It's all pervasive. The mind is completely blinded in sin. Every aspect of who we are and our existence is affected by sin. It's irrational. And I want to just allude to Jacob and Esau. You know, he, he gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup. Irrational. Like how, like, it's crazy. I always talk with Beth about it, actually. She's like, sin is insanity. It's insane when you think about it because it's that, mo- that impulsive response for the momentary satisfaction and you lose out. So it's irrational. There's no wisdom in sin. It's deceitful. As with all deception, the victim is unaware of his deceived state. We're unaware of it. When you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived because you're deceived. It's hardening. One of the most terrible and fearful things in the power of sin is that it hardens one's heart. The more one indulges in sin, the less sin bothers him. And I actually have an example of this. It kind of is a, is a small, we might think it's minor, but it's not. So going back to my middle school years, I homeschooled. Thank you, mom and dad. Um, and then I went to eighth grade. And I was faced with a lot because of the way that I was brought up. It it was a public school. It wasn't like a private or anything. And um, I was faced with a lot of peer pressure, if you will, just to sum it all up. Um, Different ways of thinking. I mean, I heard my first swear, I think, in like a a natural context. Like maybe I had heard a swear in an angry context, but in like normal, natural, occurring conversation to see kids my age swearing was like, a shock. I have another story for that, but we won't go there. You can talk to me later. Um, but I remember come freshman year of high school, I remember I went into freshman year, 
And I made this active decision of like, I am not going through high school like this. I'm not going to struggle. I'm going to blend in. I'm going to have friends. It's going to be awesome, and I'm going to have fun, which I did, but it hurt me later. Um, so I remember in middle school the first time I swore. <laughs> so ridiculous, but it's so true. I remember the first time a, a swear word came out of my mouth in the way of like just talking with a friend. And I remember it, it was such a conscious thing. That's why I remember it so clearly. It was a very conscious decision. And I was like, oh, I swore. I'm like, that's okay. That's fine. And going back to this place of it hardens your heart. As I continued to let my mouth begin to be defiled, the more that I started to defile myself in so many other ways. My heart became calloused. It became hardened. And to be able to sin became almost an, a very easy thing growing up in a Christian household. Some of us don't have this experience. Some of us, it was just very normal life. It's what we grew up in. But for me, it was a very like, I'm going to make this decision. And as I did, it didn't even phase me. I, I swear word. That was like such a petty minor thing that I didn't even think about later on. And so that's where I, that I hope gives us an understanding of how it hardens us. You know, we do one thing wrong. The more we do it, the more we get comfortable with it. And it becomes our lifestyle, essentially, leading to even worse things. Sin is enslaving. I do have scripture for all of this. If you guys want it, feel free to come see me. I'm not going to list it all. It's enslaving. Sin enslaves those who practice it. It reigns over a sinner like a tyrant. Sin is debasing. Sin turned angels into demons. It takes you from your rightful position, men and women made in the image of God, created to dream immortal dreams and to think long thoughts of eternity are reduced by sin to grovel in the muck like pigs for one morsel of bread. That's what sin does to us. It takes us from our rightful position and brings us down to be as low, lower than animals and to act like animals. Sin is defiling. It's neither cute nor is it trivial. It's wicked and perverse. I know, it's heavy, but it's the reality. The world is not the way it is because we lack a good God. The world is not the way it is because of a few bad people like Hitler. The world is the way it is because it is made up of a multitude of people like you and me. That's a quote from Charles, Charles Leiter in his book called Justification and Regeneration. There is deep wickedness in each of us. So much so that we don't even recognize it. We were born in sin. Like I said earlier, we drink it, we breathe it. We're in it and we don't know how wet we are. We don't know how deep we are in it. It's become our normal. We don't even recognize it. 
I'm sorry if I'm reading a lot of notes. It's keeping me on track, and it's a weighty subject, so it helps my mind to stay clear, but it's good nonetheless. There is only one answer to this dilemma. Someone has to pay for the sinner's sins. Justice must be satisfied. Either it will be satisfied by the sinner's own suffering forever in hell, or it must be satisfied by someone else on the sinner's behalf. Sin has eternally separated us from God. That's what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. All they did, if you want to talk about petty sin, they took a piece of fruit and took a bite out of it. And they disobeyed God, if you want to talk about something petty and small and little. And it caused the rest of humankind to be fallen and separated and distanced from a good God. So this dilemma, we, we have a righteous, and I'm not going to go down the path of justification and regeneration. That is very big and lengthy and long and theological, and I'm not smart enough to go there right now. <laughs> um, but the, the short of it is we need someone in order to be reunited with God because we have a just God who is holy And to even allow something unholy in his presence would defile him. But if he's a holy God, it's who he is. And he longs for us to enter into fellowship with him. There has to be justification. There has to be justice so that we can be reunited back with his heart. Going back to Luke 5, where it says, he, he said, I am only here to help the sick who are in need of a physician. I just painted a picture that we are all very sick. Whether you realize it or not, we are sick. And we are in need of help. And Jesus is the answer. Sorry, I'm trying to figure out if I want to go here because it kind of talks about... Let me just look in here real quick. All right, so I am going to read this. I'm not going to go through how Jesus is our justification. He is our justification. But I am going to read this. It says, the problem is solved by God himself. This is how we are reunited with God. How are we reunited back with God? If we are so fallen, if we are so wicked, if we are so full of sin, how do we gain relationship with God again? And the answer is here. The problem is solved by God himself becoming man. Taking upon him our flesh in his son, Jesus Christ, and in his body, bearing our flesh to the death of the cross. In other words, by putting his own son, the bearer of flesh, to death, he puts to death all flesh on earth. Now it is revealed that none is good, save God alone, and that none is righteous but he. 
Thus, God has given terrible proof of his own righteousness. So God put on flesh, came, and died for us, our justification, so that we could be reunited with him. It says in 1 Peter, actually, let's turn there. 1 Peter 2. Let me see if I can find 1 Peter. All right, so let's start in verse 22. He's talking of Jesus, and he says, He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reveled, he did not revel in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to, whom, to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. God, we were eternally separated from him. God put on flesh in the form of his son, came, was crucified upon a tree, whipped, beaten, broken, not only by man, but literally the wrath of God was upon Christ. The wrath for all the ages, from eternity past to the eternity of future of all sin accumulated, justice was served upon Christ on that day. So sins that you've been committed in the past and sins that you have yet to receive, he bore it all. This should bring us great joy. Great joy. Because he came to save us. A, a debased creature, a fallen, rebellious human. God goes, no, they're mine. You know, it says in, 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 I don't know which scripture it is, but you know it says, the angels fell and he did nothing about it. He did absolutely nothing about it. We fall and he pursues us to bring us into fellowship with him. In Isaiah 53, 4, it says, he himself bore our griefs and our sorrows he carried. You know, sometimes we use the way we are as an excuse because of what we've experienced. You know, of what we've, the cards we've been dealt in life. And don't get me wrong, some of us have probably been through some very serious, hurtful experiences. But the thing is that we have to understand is that he bore all of our grief, all of our sorrow, so that we can respond in love. We don't have to respond in anger and in rage. I've been a person delivered of rage. And it's because of what Christ has done for me. His blood covers all sin. I don't care what you've been through. I don't care what you face. I don't care what you've done. 
His blood will cover every last drop of sin in your life. He offers us freedom through the cross. It's like, you know, if you want to go back to this fish analogy, if we're born and he brings us up to the surface and gives us air and reveals to us and shows us things. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says he was pierced for all of our transgressions. In 1 John 1, 7, it says by the blood of Jesus, we are cleansed from all sin. That covers everything. I don't care if you've had an abortion. I don't care if you were abusive to someone. I don't care if you've killed someone. His blood covers all sin. The ground at the level, the ground at the cross is level. It's for all of us. I'm going to read this excerpt. It says, the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. No matter how great your sins may be, they are nothing compared to the infinite worth of Christ's blood. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Come to him. He invites and commands you to come. You need not fear that you are being presumptuous by coming. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost come to him. Take the water of life. Cast your sins upon him. Trust him as your sin bearer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Christ on the cross was a big cry of saying, follow me. Come to me. All you who are heavy laden, all you who are burdened, come to me. And I want to say this because I think there's, you know, there's some in this room that may be hearing this for the first time. But there's also some of us who have walked in this reality for some time. But I want to also ask ourselves to guard ourselves from becoming too familiar with this truth. Because it says in scriptures that we daily pick up our cross and follow him. It's a daily of reveling in his goodness It's daily looking upon the cross because as a Christian, yes, we are delivered in sin, but there's a thing called regeneration and sanctification that we have to walk through life and it's a process, a journey. And the only way that we can maintain this journey is keeping our paths upon the, keeping our feet upon the path is by looking upon the cross and looking upon what Jesus, I have to say in my own life, going back, I'll share a quick little testimony, is I struggled with extreme rage. Ask my parents. They loved me through it. Um, extreme, I, just, I, I would blow up in a dime. I was extremely rebellious and just full of rage and anger. And um, I got saved and was introduced, you know, in that same process, was reunited with Beth and Daryl. I knew them growing up and was introduced to 110, That was the first meeting that I ever came to in this house was 110. So go, it'll change your life. And I I was introduced to the house of prayer. 
And I asked Bethany at the time, we didn't have open sets, we had closed sets. And I asked her, I said, hey, can I come to these closed sets? And um, I just need to keep myself out of trouble. And um, so I started going. And I have to say, the more I looked upon Jesus, the more he changed me. The more I continually put myself in his presence, the more he transformed me from the inside out. And it wasn't because somebody prayed a grand prayer over me. It wasn't even necessarily that I went through this major deliverance, so I love that. It wasn't because of any of somebody else doing something for me. It was I continually brought myself to his feet, laid myself over the cross, and I said, Christ, you are the only one who can save me. You are the only one that can set me free and deliver me. And as I laid myself out before him, he washed over me. He continually, he's still doing, that's why I love it. I love going to the prayer room because he washes over my soul. He heals me. He makes me whole. He brings me to a place of freedom. He's taken all my transgressions, all my pains, all my struggles, all the injustice that was done to me. He bore it. He's the one who justifies me. That's what he's done. And I promise you, if you give yourself to him and answer this call, follow me. I promise you, your life will never look the same. And it's a daily choice. It's a daily decision of going today, this day, I choose to follow you. Because we're all prone to wander. We're all prone to fall. We're all prone to sin. I am Daryl standing up here. Leaders are not, are not less prone. We need Jesus too. We're broken. We're weak. Ask Wendy. Where's Wendy? She's not here. Ask her. She hangs out with me, my roommates. They know I'm weak. And I'm broken and I fail. But it's Jesus who comes to save. Because not only did he die upon the cross, but he went into the grave, went to hell, took the keys of death, rose up from the dead, and he lives. He lives. This is not a myth. It's not a good story that we've chosen to believe in. This is reality. He came to save, and he didn't just die, and he wasn't just whipped and beaten and broken, but he went into the grave, and he rose again, and he didn't just stay on this earth, but he went up to the right hand of the Father, and he makes intercession on our behalf, saying, God, bring them to me. Give them to me. Cause them to love me. Cause them to know me. That's what Jesus is doing right now, right this moment. It's reality. It's real. He's good. He's good. We have to recognize the depth of our sin in order to recognize the depth of what he did for us. I'm just going to end with this. I'm not going to keep going. 
the love that Christ showed us upon the cross compels us to love him in return. It compels us. We do not love first. We love because he first loved us. He first showed love towards us. That the only response that is worth anything is to love him in return. That's all he's asking for. It's love for him that compels us to follow him. It's a beautiful thing called grace. It gives us the strength to follow him. It gives us the strength to continue presenting ourselves before him. It's grace. Grace is unmerited love. We do not deserve the love that he gave to us. We don't deserve it, not one ounce. But he gave us an extravagant love. And what that should call us to is return with extravagance. You know, in Matthew 7, it talks about Mary who gave, you know, poured out her ointment upon Jesus' feet. And the disciples were looking at her like, why are you doing this? It's a little extravagant, isn't it? We could be giving this to the poor. We could be helping those in need. But Jesus responded and he said, those who are forgiven much, love much. When we know how much we've been forgiven, we will love in return. We will worship in return. This should cause transformation. Transformation inside of us and around us. So we're going to actually take um, communion this morning. I thought it was fitting for our topic and we really do it in this church. We don't consider it a ritual or something we have to do every Sunday, but we do honor it. And um, one thing I want to say to you guys as we come up for communion is to, remi- to be reminded of what Christ did for us. And that's what he said when he broke the bread And he poured the wine with his disciples. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Do it to remember what I did for you and cause it to draw you nearer to me. And so I want to call those who may not know Christ, may have not met Jesus, have not heard the call to follow him before. I want to tell you, you've heard the call to follow You've heard the call to follow him today because he gave it all so that he could be in sweet fellowship with you. And then secondly, for those of you who have already made the choice to follow, I want us to all think upon what he did that we would continue in this walk, that we would continue steadfast, that we would continue to be faithful because he was faithful to us and that we would respond with worship, and that it would cause us to live differently. So what we're going to do is we're just going to leave it here.
Keep it really simple. Just come up. Maybe do it and come up as you will. We're going to have a time of worship. One thing I always say is to think about, you know, even if there's a place of repentance, you know, you're feeling convicted of maybe a sin or a struggle that you're dealing with. Repent of it. Turn from it. But then be washed in the blood of Jesus and be free from it. I said this to my mom the other day. We were talking and I said, condemnation is simply conviction without repentance. When we remain in condemnation, we're not recognizing that Jesus covers it. So we're guilty. We are guilty. We are guilty, guilty, guilty. So when you feel that place of condemnation, of failure, of sin, of weakness, bring it to the cross of Christ. Let him take it. And out of that, walk in freedom. So think upon that as you come up to take communion. And we'll just have a time of ministry. If we just all probably come to the center, how it can be um, unorthodox. It doesn't have to be row by row. But if we come to the center, come up, and then exit and go sit back down to create a little bit of order.